Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome to chapters 13 and 14 of Captain Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World. At Appia, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. A. Young, the father of the late Queen Margaret, who was Queen of Manoa from 1891 to 1895. Her grandfather was an English sailor who married a princess. Mr. Young is now the only survivor of the family, two of his children, the last of them all, having been lost in an island trader which a few months before had sailed never to return. Mr. Young was a Christian gentleman and his daughter Margaret was accomplished in graces that would become any lady. It was with pain that I saw in the newspapers a sensational account of her life and death taken evidently from a paper in the supposed interest of a benevolent society, but without foundation in fact, and the startling headline saying, Queen Margaret of Manoa is dead, could hardly be called news in 1898, the Queen having been dead three years. While hobnobbing, as it were, with royalty, I called on the King himself, the late Malitoa, King Malitoa was a great ruler. He never got less than $45 a month for the job, as he told me himself, and this amount had lately been raised so that he could live on the fat of the land and not any longer be called Tin of Salmon Malitoa by graceless beachcombers. As my interpreter and I entered the front door of the palace, the king's brother, who was viceroy, sneaked in through a tarot patch by the back way and sat cowering by the door while I told my story to the king. Mr. W. of New York, a gentleman interested in missionary work, had charged me, when I sailed, to give his remembrance to the king of the cannibal islands, other islands, of course, being meant, but the good king Malitoa, notwithstanding that his people have not eaten a missionary in a hundred years, received the message himself and seemed greatly pleased to hear so directly from the publishers of the Missionary Review, and wished me to make his compliments in return. His Majesty then excused himself while I talked with his daughter, the beautiful Famu Sami, a name signifying to make the sea burn, and soon reappeared in the full-dress uniform of the German Commander-in-Chief, Emperor William himself. For, stupidly enough, I had not sent my credentials ahead that the King might be in full regalia to receive me. Calling a few days later to say goodbye to Farmu Sami, I saw King Malitoa for the last time. Of the lowlands in the pleasant town of Appia, my memory rests first on the little school, just back of the London Missionary Society coffee house and reading rooms where Mrs. Bell taught English to about a hundred native children, boys and girls. Brighter children you will not find anywhere. Now children, said Mrs. Bell when I called one day, let us show the captain that we know something about the Cape Horn he passed in the spray, at which a lad of nine or ten years stepped nimbly forward and read Basil Hall's fine description of the Great Cape and read it well. He afterward copied the essay for me in a clear hand. Calling to say goodbye to my friends at Vilema, I met Mrs. Stevenson in her Panama hat and went over the estate with her. Men were at work clearing the land, and to one of them she gave an order to cut a couple of the bamboo trees for the spray from a clump she had planted four years before, and which had grown the height of sixty feet. I used them for spare spars, and the butt of one made a serviceable jaboom on the homeward voyage. I had then only to take Ava with the family and be ready for sea. 
This ceremony, important among Samoans, was conducted after the native fashion. A triton horn was sounded to let us know when the beverage was ready, and in response we all clapped hands. The bout being in honour of the spray, it was my turn first, after the custom of the country, to spill a little over my shoulder, for having forgotten the Samoan for let the gods drink, I repeated the equivalent in Russian and Chinook, as I remembered a word in each, whereupon Mr. Osborne pronounced me a confirmed Samoan. Then I said Tofa to my good friends of Samoa, and all wishing the spray bon voyage, she stood out of the harbour August 20th, 1896, and continued on her course. A sense of loneliness seized upon me as the islands faded astern, and as a remedy for it, I crowded on sail for lovely Australia, which was not a strange land to me, but for long days in my dreams, Vilema stood before the prow. The spray had barely cleared the islands when a sudden burst of the trades brought her down to close reefs and she reeled off 184 miles the first day of which I counted 40 miles of current in her favour. Finding a rough sea, I swung her off free and sailed north of the Horn Islands, also north of Fiji instead of south as I had intended, and coasted down the west side of the archipelago. Thence I sailed direct for New South Wales, passing south of New Caledonia, and arrived at Newcastle after a passage of 42 days, mostly of storms and gales. One particularly severe gale encountered near New Caledonia founded the American clipper ship Patrician, farther south, again nearer the coast of Australia, when however I was not aware that the gale was extraordinary, a French mail steamer from New Caledonia for Sydney, blown considerably out of her course, on her arrival reported it an awful storm, and to inquiring friends said, Oh my, we don't know what has become of the little sloop spray. We saw her in the thick of the storm. The spray was all right, lying to like a duck. She was under a goosewing mainsail and had had a dry deck while the passengers on the steamer, I heard later, were up to their knees in winter in the saloon. When their ship arrived at Sydney, they gave the captain a purse of gold for his skill and seamanship in bringing them safe into port. The captain of the spray got nothing of his sort. In this gale, I made the land about Seal Rocks, where the steamship Catherton, with many lives, was lost a short time before. I was many hours off the rocks, beating back and forth, but weathered them at last. I arrived at Newcastle in the teeth of a gale of wind. It was a stormy season. The government pilot, Captain Cumming, met me at the harbour bar and with the assistance of a steamer carried my vessel to a safe berth. Many visitors came on board, the first being the United States Consul, Mr. Brown. Nothing was too good for the spray here. All government dues were remitted, and after I rested a few days, a port pilot with a tug carried her to sea again, and she made along the coast toward the harbour of Sydney, where she arrived on the following day, October 10th, 1896. I came to in a snug cove near Manly for the night, the Sydney Harbour police boat giving me a pluck into Anchorage while they gathered data from an old scrapbook of mine, which seemed to interest them. Nothing escapes the vigilance of the New South Wales police. Their reputation is known the world over. They made a shrewd guess that I could give them some useful information, and they were the first to meet me. Someone said they came to arrest me, and, well, let it go at that. Summer was approaching, and the harbour of Sydney was blooming with yachts. Some of them came down to the weather-beaten spray and sailed round her at Shellcote, where she took a berth for a few days. At Sydney, I was once more among friends. 
The spray remained at the various watering places in the great port for several weeks and was visited by many agreeable people, frequently by officers of HMS Orlando and their friends. Captain Fisher, the commander, with a party of young ladies from the city and gentlemen belonging to his ship, came one day to pay me a visit in the midst of a deluge of rain. I never saw it rain harder, even in Australia, but they were out for fun and rain could not dampen their feelings, however hard it poured. But, as ill luck would have it, a young gentleman of another party on board, in the full uniform of a very great yacht club, with brass buttons enough to sink him, stepping quickly to get out of the wet, tumbled holus bolus head and heels into a barrel of water I had been coopering and being a short man was soon out of sight and nearly drowned before he was rescued. It was the nearest to a casualty on the spray in her whole course so far as I know. The young man having come on board with compliments made the mishap most embarrassing. It had been decided by his club that the spray could not be officially recognized for the reason that she brought no letters from yacht clubs in America. And so I say it seemed all the more embarrassing and strange that I should have caught at least one of the members in a barrel and two when I was not fishing for yachtsmen. The typical Sydney boat is a handy sloop of great beam and enormous sail carrying power, but a capsize is not uncommon, for they carry sail like Vikings. In Sydney, I saw all manner of craft, from the smart steam launch and sailing cutter to the smaller sloop and canoe pleasuring on the bay. Everybody owned a boat. If a boy in Australia has not the means to buy him a boat, he builds one. And it is usually not anything to be shamed of. The spray shed her Joseph's coat, the Fugo mainsail in Sydney, and wearing a new suit, the handsome present of Commodore Foy, she was flagship of the Johnston's Bay Flying Squadron when the circumnavigators of Sydney Harbour sailed in their annual regatta. They recognised the spray as belonging to a club of her own and with more Australian sentiment than fastidiousness gave her credit for her record. Time flew fast those days in Australia and it was December 6th, 1896 when the spray sailed from Sydney. My intention was now to sail around Cape Lewin direct for Mauritius on my way home and so I coasted along toward Bass Strait in that direction. There was little to report on this part of the voyage except changeable winds, busters and rough seas. The 12th of December, however, was an exceptional day with a fine coast wind northeast. The spray early in the morning passed Twofold Bay and later Cape Bundaroo in a smooth sea with land close aboard. The lighthouse on the Cape dipped a flag to the spray's flag and children on the balconies of a cottage near the shore waved handkerchiefs as she passed by. There were only a few people all told on the shore, but the scene was a happy one. I saw festoons of evergreen in token of Christmas near at hand. I saluted the merrymakers, wishing them a merry Christmas, and could hear them say, I wish you the same. From Cape Bundaroo, I passed by Cliff Island in Bass Strait and exchanged signals with the lightkeepers while the spray worked up under the island. The wind howled that day while the sea broke over the rocky home. A few days later, December 17th, the spray came in close under Wilson's promontory, again seeking shelter. The keeper of the light at that station, Mr. J. Clark, came on board and gave me directions for Waterloo Bay, about three miles to leeward, for which I bore up at once, finding good anchorage there in a sandy cove protected from all westerly and northerly winds. Anchored here was the catch secret, a fisherman and the Mary of Sydney, 
a steam ferry boat fitted for whaling. The captain of the Mary was a genius, and an Australian genius at that, and smart. His crew, from a sawmill up the coast, had not one of them seen a live whale when they shipped, but they were boatmen after an Australian's own heart, and the captain had told them that to kill a whale was no more than to kill a rabbit. They believed him, and that settled it. As luck would have it, the first one they saw on their cruise, although an ugly humpback, was a dead whale in no time. Captain Young, the master of the Mary, killing the monster at a single thrust of a harpoon. It was now taken in tow for Sydney, where they put it on exhibition. Nothing but whales interested the crew of the gallant Mary, and they spent most of their time here gathering fuel along shore for a cruise on the grounds of Tasmania. Whenever the word whale was mentioned in the hearing of these men, their eyes glistened with excitement. We spent three days in the quiet cove, listening to the wind outside. Meanwhile, Captain Young and I explored the shores, visited abandoned miners' pits, and prospected for gold ourselves. Our vessels, parting company, the morning they sailed, stood away like seabirds, each on its own course. The wind, for a few days, was moderate, and, with unusual luck of fine weather, the spray made Melbourne heads on the 22nd of December, and taken in tow by the steam tug racer, was brought into port. Christmas Day was spent at a berth in the River Yarrow, but I lost little time in shifting to St Kilda, where I spent nearly a month. The spray paid no port charges in Australia or anywhere else on the voyage except at Pernambuco, till she poked her nose into the custom house at Melbourne, where she was charged tonnage dues, in this instance sixpence a ton on the gross, the collector exacted six shillings and sixpence, taking off nothing for the fraction under 13 tons, her exact gross being 12.70 tons. I squared the matter by charging people sixpence each for coming on board, and when this business got dull, I caught a shark and charged them sixpence each to look at that. The shark was 12 feet 6 inches in length and carried a progeny of 26, not one of them less than 2 feet in length. A slit of a knife let them out in a canoe full of water, which, changed constantly, kept them alive one whole day. In less than an hour from the time I heard of the ugly brute, it was on deck and on exhibition, with rather more than the amount of the spray's tonnage dues already collected. Then I hired a good Irishman, Tom Howard by name, who knew all about sharks, both on the land and in the sea, and could talk about them, to answer questions and lecture. When I found that I could not keep abreast of the questions, I turned the responsibility over to him. Returning from the bank where I had been to deposit money earlier in the day, I found Howard in the midst of a very excited crowd telling imaginary habits of the fish. It was a good show. The people wished to see it, and it was my wish that they should. But owing to this overstimulated enthusiasm, I was obliged to let Howard resign. The income from the show and the proceeds of the tallow I'd gathered in the Strait of Magellan, the last of which I had disposed of to a German soap boiler at Samoan, put me in ample funds. January 24th, 1897, found the spray again in tow of the tug racer, leaving Hobson's Bay after a pleasant time in Melbourne and St Kilda, which had been protracted by a succession of southwest winds that seemed never-ending. In the summer months, that is December, January, February and sometimes March, east winds are prevalent through Bass Strait and round Cape Lewin, but owing to a vast amount of ice drifting up from the Antarctic, this was all changed now and emphasised with much bad weather. 
so much so that I considered it impractical to pursue the course farther. Therefore, instead of thrashing round cold and stormy Cape Lewin, I decided to spend a pleasanter and more profitable time in Tasmania, waiting for the season for favourable winds through Torres Strait, by way of the Great Barrier Reef, the route I finally decided on. To sail this course would be taking advantage of anti-cyclones which never fail, and besides it would give me the chance to put foot on the shores of Tasmania, round which I had sailed years before. I should mention that while I was at Melbourne there occurred one of these extraordinary storms sometimes called Rain of Blood, the first of its kind in many years about Australia. The blood came from a fine brick dust matter afloat in the air from the deserts. A rainstorm setting in brought down this dust simply as mud. It fell in such quantities that a bucketful was collected from the sloop's awnings which were spread at the time. When the wind blew hard and I was obliged to furl awnings, her sails unprotected on the booms got mud-stained from clue to earring. The phenomena of dust storms well understood by scientists are not uncommon on the coast of Africa. Reaching some distance out over the sea, they frequently cover the tracks of ships, as in the case of the one through which the spray passed in the earlier part of her voyage. Sailors no longer regard them with superstitious fear, but our credulous brothers on the land cry out, Rain of blood! at the first splash of the awful mud. The rip-off Port Phillip Heads, a wild place, was rough when the spray entered Hobson's Bay from the sea and was rougher when she stood out. But with sea room and under sail, she made good weather immediately after passing it. It was only a few hours sail to Tasmania across the strait, the wind being fair and blowing hard. I carried the St Kilda shark along, stuffed with hay, and disposed of it to Professor Porter, the curator of the Victoria Museum of Launceston, which is at the head of the Tamar. For many a long day to come may be seen there the shark of St Kilda. Alas, the good but mistaken people of St Kilda, when the illustrated journals with pictures of my shark reached their newsstands, flew into a passion and swept all papers containing mention of fish into the fire, St Kilda was a watering place and the idea of a shark there, but my show went on. The spray was berthed on the beach at a small jetty at Launceston, while the tide driven in by the gale that brought her up the river was unusually high, and she lay there hard and fast with not enough water around her at any time after to wet one's feet till she was ready to sail. Then, to float her, the ground was dug from under her keel. In this snug place, I left her in charge of three children, while I made journeys among the hills and rested my bones for the forthcoming voyage on the rust-covered rocks at the gorge hard by, and among the ferns I found wherever I went. My vessel was well taken care of. I never returned without finding that the decks had been washed and that one of the children, my nearest neighbour's little girl from across the road, was at the gangway attending to visitors, while the others, a brother and sister, sold marine curios such as were in the cargo on ship's account. They were a bright, cheerful crew, and people came a long way to hear them tell the story of the voyage and of the monsters of the deep the captain had slain. I had only to keep myself away to be a hero of the first water, and be suited me very well to do so, and to rusticate in forests and among the streams. Chapter 14 February 1st, 1897, on returning to my vessel, I found, waiting for me, the letter of sympathy which I subjoin. 
a lady sends Mr. Slocum the enclosed £5 note as a token of her appreciation of his bravery in crossing the wide seas on so small a boat and all alone, without human sympathy to help when danger threatened. All success to you. To this day I do not know who wrote it, or to whom I am indebted for the generous gift it contained. I could not refuse a thing so kindly meant, but promised myself to pass it on with interest at the first opportunity, and this I did before leaving Australia. The season of fair weather around the north of Australia being yet a long way off, I sailed to other ports in Tasmania where it is fine the year round. The first of these being Beauty Point, near which are Beaconsfield and the great Tasmanian gold mine which I visited in turn. I saw much grey, uninteresting rock being hoisted out of the mine there and hundreds of stamps crushing it into powder. People told me there was gold in it and I believed what they said. I remember Beauty Point for its shady forest and for the road among the tall gum trees. While there, the Governor of New South Wales, Lord Hampton, and his family came in on a steam yacht, sightseeing. The spray, anchored near the landing pier, threw her bunting out of course and probably a more insignificant craft bearing the stars and stripes was never seen in those waters. However, the Governor's party seemed to know why it floated there and all about the spray. And when I heard His Excellency say, introduce me to the captain, or introduce the captain to me, whichever it was, I found myself at once in the presence of a gentleman and a friend, and one greatly interested in my voyage. If any one of the party was more interested than the governor himself, it was the Honourable Margaret, his daughter. On leaving, Lord and Lady Hampton promised to rendezvous with me on board the spray at the Paris Exposition in 1900. If we live, they said, and I added for my part, dangers of the seas accepted. From Beauty Point, the spray visited Georgetown, near the mouth of the River Tamar. This little settlement, I believe, marks a place where the first footprints were made by whites in Tasmania, though it never grew to be more than a hamlet. Considering that I had seen something of the world and finding people here interesting in adventure, I talked the matter over before my first audience in a little hall by the country road. A piano, having been brought in from a neighbour's, I was helped out by the severe thumping it got and by a Tommy Atkins song from a strolling comedian. People came from a great distance and the attendants all told netted the house about three pounds sterling. The owner of the hall, a kind lady from Scotland, would take no rent and so my lecture from the start was a success. From this little snug place I made sail for Devonport, a thriving place on the River Mersey a few hours sail westward along the coast and fast becoming the most important port in Tasmania. Large steamers enter there now and carry away great cargoes of farm produce, but the spray was the first vessel to bring stars and stripes to the port. The harbour master, a Captain Murray, told me so, and it is written in the port records. For the great distinction, the spray enjoyed many civilities while she rode comfortably at anchor in her port duster awning, that covered her from stem to stern. From the magistrate's house, Mulana, on the point, she was saluted by the jack both on coming in and going out, and dear Mrs. Aikenhead, the mistress of Mulana, supplied the spray with jams and jellies of all sorts by the case prepared from the fruits of her own rich garden, enough to last all the way home and to spare. Mrs. Wood, farther up the harbour, 
put up bottles of raspberry wine for me. At this point, more than ever before, I was in the land of good cheer. Mrs. Powell sent on board chutney prepared as we prepare it in India. Fish and game were plentiful here, and the voice of the gobbler was heard, and from Padro, farther up the country, came an enormous cheese, and yet people inquire, what did you live on? What did you eat? I was haunted by the beauty of the landscape all about, of the natural ferneries then disappearing, and of the doomed forest trees on the slopes, and was fortunate in meeting a gentleman intent on preserving in art the beauties of his country. He presented me with many reproductions from his collection of pictures, also many originals, to show to my friends. By another gentleman, I was charged to tell the glories of Tasmania in every land and on every occasion. This was Dr. McCall, MLC. The doctor gave me useful hints on lecturing. It was not without misgivings, however, that I filled away on this new course, and I am free to say that it is only by the kindness of sympathetic audiences that my oratorical bark was held on an even keel. Soon after my first talk, the kind doctor came to me with words of approval. As in many other of my enterprises, I had gone about it at once and without second thought. Man, man, said he, great nervousness is only a sign of brain, and the more brain a man has, the longer it takes him to get over the affliction. But, he added reflectively, you will get over it. However, in my own behalf, I think it only fair to say that I am not yet entirely cured. The spray was hauled out on the marine railway at Devonport and examined carefully top and bottom, but was found absolutely free from the destructive torridor and sound in all respects. To protect her further against the ravage of these insects, the bottom was coated once more with copper paint, for she would have to sail through the coral and Arafura seas before refitting again. Everything was done to fit her for all the known dangers, but it was not without regret that I looked forward to the day of sailing from a country of so many pleasant associations. If there was a moment in my voyage when I could have given it up, it was there and then. But no vacancies for a better post being open, I weighed anchor April 16th, 1897, and again put to sea. The season of summer was then over. Winter was rolling up from the south with fair winds from the north. A foretaste of winter wind sent the spray flying round Cape Howe and as far as Cape Bundaroo farther along, which she passed on the following day, retracing her course northward. This was a fine run and boded good for the long voyage home from the Antipodes. My old Christmas friends of Bundaroo seemed to be up and moving when I came the second time by their cape and we exchanged signals again while the sloop sailed along as before in a smooth sea and close to the shore. The weather was fine with clear sky the rest of the passage to Port Jackson of Sydney where the spray arrived April 22nd 1897 and anchored in Watson's Bay near the heads in eight fathoms of water. The harbour from the heads to Parramatta, up the river, was more than ever alive with boats and yachts of every class. It was indeed a scene of animation hardly equalled in any other part of the world. A few days later, the bay was flecked with tempestuous waves and none but stout ships carried sail. I was in a neighbouring hotel then, nursing a neuralgia, which I had picked up along shore and had only that moment got a glance of just the stern of a large unmanageable steamship passing the range of my window as she forged in by the point, when the bellboy burst into my room shouting that the spray had 
gone bung. I tumbled out quickly to learn that bung meant that a large steamship had run into her and that it was the one of which I'd saw the stern, the other end of her having hit the spray. It turned out, however, that no damage was done beyond the loss of an anchor and chain which, from the shock of the collision, had parted at the hawse. I had nothing at all to complain of, though, in the end, for the captain, after he clubbed his ship, took the spray in tow up the harbour, clear of all dangers, and sent her back again, in charge of an officer and three men, to her anchorage in the bay, with a polite note saying that he would repair any damages done. But what yawing about she made of it when she came with a stranger at the helm? My old friend, the pilot of the Pinter, would not have been guilty of such lubberly work. To my great delight, they got her into a berth, and the neuralgia left me then, or was forgotten. The captain of the steamer, like a true seaman, kept his word, and his agent, Mr. Collinshaw, handed me on the very next day the price of the lost anchor and chain, with something over for anxiety of mind. I remember that he offered me £12 at once, and my lucky number being 13, we made the account £13, which squared all accounts. I sailed again May 9th, before a strong southwest wind, which sent the spray gallantly on as far as Port Stephens, where it fell calm and then came up ahead. But the weather was fine, and so remained for many days, which was a great change from the state of the weather experienced here some months before. Having a full set of Admiralty sheet charts of the coast and barrier reef, I felt easy in mind. Captain Fisher, Royal Navy, who had steamed through the barrier passages in HMS Orlando, advised me from the first to take this route, and I did not regret coming back to it now. The wind, for a few days after passing Port Stephens, Seal Rocks and Cape Hawk, was light and dead ahead, but these points are photographed on my memory from the trial of beating round them some months before when bound the other way. But now, with a good stock of books on board, I fell to reading day and night, leaving this pleasant occupation merely to trim sails or tack or to lie down and rest, while the spray nibbled at the miles. I tried to compare my state with that of old circumnavigators who sailed exactly over the route which I took from Cape Verde Islands or farther back to this point and beyond where there was no comparison as far as I had got. Their hardships and romantic escapes, those of them who escaped death and worse sufferings, did not enter into my experience sailing all alone around the world. For me is left to tell only of pleasant experiences till finally my adventures are prosy and tame. I had just finished reading some of the most interesting of the old voyages in woe-begone ships and was already near Port Macquarie on my own cruise when I made out, May 13th, a modern dandy craft in distress anchored on the coast. Standing in for her, I found that she was the cutter yacht Akbar, which had sailed from Watson's Bay about three days ahead of the spray and that she had run at once into trouble. No wonder she did so. It was a case of babes in the wood or butterflies at sea. Her owner, on his maiden voyage, was all duck trousers. The captain, distinguished for the enormous yachtsman's cap he wore, was a Murrumbidgee whaler before he took command of the Akbar. And the navigating officer, poor fellow, was almost as deaf as a post and nearly as stiff and immovable as a post in the ground. These three jolly tars comprised the crew. None of them knew more about the sea or about a vessel than a newly born babe knows about another world. They were bound for New Guinea, so they said. Perhaps it was as well that three tender feet, so tender as these, 
never reached that destination. The owner, whom I had met before he sailed, wanted to race the poor old spray to Thursday Island en route. I declined the challenge, naturally, on the ground of the unfairness of three young yachtsmen in a clipper against an old sailor all alone in a craft of coarse build. Besides that, I would not on any account race in the Coral Sea. Spray ahoy, they all hailed now. What's the weather going to be? Is it going to blow? And don't you think we'd better go back to, to refit? I thought, if ever you get back, don't refit. But I said, give me the end of a rope and I'll tow you into yon port farther along and on your lives, I urged, do not go back round Cape Hawk for it's winter to the south of it. They purposed making for Newcastle under jury sails for their mainsail had been blown to ribbons. Even the jigger had been blown away and her rigging flew at loose ends. The Akbar, in a word, was a wreck. Up anchor, I shouted. Up anchor and let me tow you into Port Macri, 12 miles north of this. No, cried the owner. We'll go back to Newcastle. We missed Newcastle on the way coming. We didn't see the light and it was not thick either. This he shouted very loud, ostensibly for my hearing, but closer even than necessary, I thought to the ear of the navigating officer. Again, I tried to persuade them to be towed into the port of refuge so near at hand. It would have cost them only the trouble of weighing their anchor and passing me a rope. Of this I assured them, but they declined even this, in sheer ignorance of a rational course. What is your depth of water? I asked. I don't know. We lost our lead. All the chain is out. We sounded with the anchor. Send your dinghy over and I'll give you a lead. We've lost our dinghy too, they cried. God is good, else you would have lost yourselves. And farewell was all I could say. The trifling service proffered by the spray would have saved their vessel. Report us, they cried as I stood on. Report us with sails blown away and that we don't care a dash and we're not afraid. Then there is no hope for you. And again, farewell. I promised I would report them and did so at the first opportunity and out of humane reasons, I do so again. On the following day, I spoke the steamship Sherman, bound down the coast and reported the yacht in distress and that it would be an act of humanity to tow her somewhere away from her exposed position on an open coast. That she did not get a tow from the steamer was from no lack of funds to pay the bill for the owner, lately heir to a few hundred pounds, had the money with him. The proposed voyage to New Guinea was to look that island over with a view to its purchase. It was about 18 days before I heard of the Akbar again, which was on the 31st of May, when I reached Cooktown on the Endeavour River, where I heard this news. May 31st, the yacht Akbar from Sydney to New Guinea, three hands on board, lost at Crescent Head. The crew saved. So it took them several days to lose the yacht after all. After speaking the distressed Akbar and the Sherman, the voyage for many days was uneventful, save in the pleasant instant on May 16th of a chat by signal with the people on South Solitary Island, a dreary stone heap in the ocean just off the coast of New South Wales, in latitude 30 degrees 12 minutes south. What vessel is that? they asked as the sloop came abreast of their island. For answer, I tried them with the stars and stripes at the peak. Down came their signals at once, and up went the British ensign instead, which they dipped heartily. I understood from this that they made out my vessel and knew all about her, for they asked no more questions. They didn't even ask if the voyage would pay, but they threw out this friendly message, wishing you a pleasant voyage. 
which at that very moment I was having. May 19th, the spray past the Tweed River was signalled from Danger Point, where those on shore seemed most anxious about the state of my health, for they asked if all hands were well, to which I could say yes. On the following day, the spray rounded Great Sandy Cape, and, what is a notable event in every voyage, picked up the trade winds, and these winds followed her now for many thousands of miles, never ceasing to blow from a moderate gale to a mild summer breeze, except at rare intervals. From the pitch of the Cape was a noble light seen 27 miles, passing from this to Lady Elliot Light, which stands on an island as a sentinel at the gateway of the Barrier Reef. The spray was at once in the fairway leading north. Poets have sung of beacon lights and of pharaohs, but did ever poet behold a great light flash up before his path on a dark night in the midst of a coral sea? If so, he knew the meaning of his song. The spray had sailed for hours in suspense, evidently stemming a current. Almost mad with doubt, I grasped the helm to throw her head off shore, when blazing out of the sea was the light ahead. Excalibur! cried all hands, and rejoiced, and sailed on. The spray was now in a protected sea and smooth water, the first she had dipped her keel into since leaving Gibraltar, and a change it was from the heaving of the misnamed Pacific Ocean. The Pacific is perhaps, upon the whole, no more boisterous than other oceans, though I feel quite safe in saying that it is not more Pacific except in name. It is often wild enough in one part or another. I once knew a writer who, after saying beautiful things about the sea, passed through a Pacific hurricane, and he became a changed man. But where, after all, would be the poetry of the sea, where there are no wild waves? At last here was a spray in the midst of a sea of coral. The sea itself might be called smooth indeed, but coral rocks are always rough, sharp and dangerous. I trusted now to the mercies of the maker of all reefs, keeping a good lookout at the same time for perils on every hand. Lo, the barrier reef and the waters of many colours studded up all about with enchanted islands. I behold among them, after all, many safe harbours, else my vision is astray. On the 24th of May, the sloop, having made 110 miles a day from Danger Point, now entered Whitsunday Pass, and that night sailed on through the islands. When the sun rose next morning, I looked back and regretted having gone by while it was dark, for the scenery far astern was varied and charming. That's the end of these chapters. If you'd like to continue with the story, go on to the next podcast. If you'd like to hear my commentary, that's coming next. Well, welcome to the commentary for chapters 13 and 14. Um, some nice passages in here. I enjoyed reading this. Um, there's not huge amounts going on at this point in the book. Obviously, Cape Horn was a, a, a major moment in what was happening, crossing the equator the first time, Gibraltar. There's, there's some big points in that. But his arrival in Australia was, I think, the beginning for Slocum of him getting back to places that he already knew. He'd already been the master of a, a big clipper ship at the time, the Northern Lights. He had done his time uh, going around the world as a, as a trader. And now getting back to Australia was certainly perhaps a move back into the kind of circles and people that he had known before. Um, his voyage to Australia from uh, Samoa, he starts off obviously being uh, 
wined and dined by royalty in uh, Samoa. That seems to be pretty much uh, par for the course. He certainly has demonstrated how beneficial his publicity of the event has been, of his voyage, and how much assistance that has meant that he's got all along the way. But he does also seem to be very good at making friends and, and communicating with people and becoming part of what's going on. So he's really got it good from both ends. He's able to mix it up himself, but he's done enough putting in a foundation so that almost at no point along the voyage um, does he have to pay anything really for, for most of the services that he receives. We'll hear a little bit later on that that kind of breaks down a bit in Melbourne, but um, he soon has a solution for that as well. So coming out of Samoa, He's uh, very quickly back into his life at sea. And obviously Slocum is a, a, a fantastic seaman who is able to uh, now drive the spray without anybody at the helm. He's got this all sorted out with his self-steering system. It seems to just be that he's lashing the wheel or letting her find her own path through things. This kind of sloop, um, he... It, this this boat is a sloop, uh, but he actually adjusts the headsails round to being closer to a cutter later on. But he still refers to the boat as being a, a sloop. That uh, two headsails up there at the front, which change it from being a sloop to a cutter. A lot of times when you're working with headsails like that in boats which you're intending to take, and, and particularly like beat up wind, it's good to have two headsails working together instead of one. Um, it's for the same reason that it's good for two wings to be close together in the setup on a biplane. You see a lot of little uh, biplanes that are used for aerobatics displays and, and sport flying, the Red Bull uh, aerobatics uh, stuff. Oftentimes those biplanes are very, very good because you get one wing is flying in the ground effect of the other wing. So as a plane comes down closer to the ground, it gets a good kind of um, boundary buffeting layer of wind between the underside of the wing and the surface of the ground. And that extra pressure which is created there is called ground effect and it makes the wing essentially a lot more efficient. The same thing happens on a biplane when we have two wings essentially flying very close together. One of them is in the ground effect of the other. Um, and that means that headsails on a cutter, uh, a boat which has two headsails forward of the mast, they have a certain efficiency connected to them, which can really help with, particularly with acceleration. So you've got two headsails, which means you've got the ability to swap out sails. You know, you just have to drop the outer sail to get onto the inner sail and essentially reef the headsails. So it's good there. You can have very high clues on them, which means the bit where the sheet's attached on the sail is very high off the deck. That would be more like a, a Yankee cut jib lets water fly over the foredeck nice and easily, gives you a little bit more vision from the helm position so you can see forward. And then those two sails flying close by each other um, have the added benefit. Many people feel that you have better acceleration to um, increase the boat's speed after she's been slowed by a wave. So a cutter rig for going up wind, very, very useful. Um, he still always calls it a sloop, but he has got himself into a situation now where he can balance up those headsails balance up the helm and the boat is sailing itself pretty much perfectly. We have to remember that at this time when um, when Slocum is doing this, there's no autopilot, there's no wind vane, there's no anything. There's Obviously, people have got small yachts. They would have worked out just as quickly as we can that uh, you can let go the, um, the helm and then balance up uh, your main sheet and balance up your uh, jib leads and you can get the boat pretty balanced. It tends to be that it's not as fast as it could be if someone's at the helm um, they're always going to find a quicker way through 
modern autopilots obviously have algorithms and uh, uh, sensors, accelerometers, uh, gyroscopic compasses that allow them to react uh, in a way which is a lot closer to a natural helmsman. But um, when you've just got the helm lashed off or you're letting her just find her way, um, it does tend to be that she's a little bit slower. You have to put a lot more twist in the sails. On a modern boat, you're going to be playing with your vang, your traveler, and your main sheet to again have the mainsail twisted out pretty heavily. If you sheet everything down and try and work the, the boat too hard, uh, you just can't find a point of balance. This is something I've actually spent a lot of time with. Um, obviously, I'm sailing these 60-foot boats. Oftentimes, I'm sailing them in a, a solo situation. And so over time, I have learned that it's very, very important to me to make sure that at any time, if the power fails that I have some other uh, situation that I can fall back on. And, um, and, I, and I learned that because I actually got into a situation off Australia, which I'll describe once the, uh, the book gets through to that part where he's off Australia. But I got to a point on an open 60 in around the world race where I'd, there was no more power. The batteries were flat. I couldn't start the engine. And at that point, I realized, wow, you know, I'm going to have to go back to some pretty basic sailing here. Exactly the sailing that uh, Slocum is using now to continue his voyage out of the Pacific and towards the coast of Australia. Now it's interesting as we get going here that um, as he approaches the Australian coast he's discussing the fact that uh, a ship called the Patrician had made its way through terrible uh, weather to finally make uh, port in Australia and when they got there the, the passengers on board the boat gave the captain a little purse of gold to thank him for his seamanship in bringing them safe through. He has a very kind of like tongue-in-cheek look at this and he says the captain of the spray got nothing of this sort. Speaking about himself in the third person, uh, you know, what he's doing with that small vessel, it's comparable. Uh, you know, a lot of people like small boats in heavy weather. They say, you know, you never see a wave break over a gull's back. That that does follow to a certain length you know the cork will kind of bob around on the surface of the ocean but it's a pretty rough ride and obviously if there's a big breaking wave comes through a small boat is much more at risk than a larger one but certainly he's feeling there that uh you know <laughs> he's just i think gently pointing out to his reader like hey you know they got a big ship and they managed to find their way through and said it was so awful and didn't know where the spray was but actually we were completely fine no problem at all and i did it all for nothing when he gets himself into um, Australia, he goes uh, along to um, get uh, signed in and get himself a berth. And of course, everything is free. He's got a very nice situation going on, as we've said, going around the world, being uh, followed by the press and by all these different uh, people that are benefactors who are interested in his story. And he uh, has a fantastic time in Sydney uh, interacting with the, the police there. It's, he seems to be very impressed by the Sydney Harbour Police. And what we have to remember is that uh, Australia had a very particular start. Obviously, it was a penal colony for the British for many years. Um, and by the 1890s, we're still in a situation where the six different uh, provinces of, uh, of Australia, there were actually six colonies. There was New South Wales, Tasmania, South Australia, Victoria, Queensland, and Western Australia. And those six colonies were all on the same continent, but they were all governed like they were rival countries. And there was a limited interest in the idea of, of uniting them together. And in fact, businessmen seem to be actively trying to protect their own economic interest and keep them separated. By 1888, 70% of the population in Australia had been born there. Obviously, the initial settlers had all been moved in from other countries, primarily the UK and Ireland. 
But by 1888, 70% had been born there. And there's a growing feeling of national pride and a desire to become their own country. Communication had also improved with the rest of the colonies in the UK via the overland telegraph and the submarine cables. And there was a lot of expansion of uh, Germany, France and Russia in the Pacific. And uh, it was felt that the colonies could better uh, defend themselves if they had their own individual uh, armies. So it was a very interesting time for Slocum to be in Australia and to uh, to be touring amongst some very interesting people. Remember, he kind of hobnobbed with uh, governor generals and lieutenant commanders, and it was a very uh, eye-opening experience, I'm sure, to be there uh, during this uh, Reformation time. It was 1901 that Australia became the country that it is now. He's there, of course, just five or six years before. So in uh, Melbourne, finally, when he gets down there, he gets his first experience of having to pay all the taxes. His uh, idea of being recognized everywhere and being, you know, the famous spray and the Captain Slocum had, had pretty much worked his whole way around the world like that. But finally in Melbourne, as always happens, uh, taxes caught up with him and he had to pay uh, the taxes uh, related to the spray's tonnage and weight. They saw it as being a small commercial vessel, probably not helped by the fact, of course, that he'd taken on that cargo of tallow, which he still seemed to be uh, working through and offloading. Um, but isn't it fantastic that as soon as he gets that bill for whatever it is uh, to, to be alongside, he immediately um, gets a, uh, a shark on board, cuts it open and gets its young out of it, which you know, when you think, well, we think about that, at least he killed it, not uh, into this thing where they cut the fins off and throw them back in. At least he killed it clean and then uh, had it as a, a display. I think in the end it ends up, yeah, it ends up in, in uh, Launceston, right? In uh, in Hobart. Uh, yeah, he, he takes it there. So no no waste, it gets, uh, gets used up, but he's already made enough money to cover the taxation uh, within a couple of hours of, uh, of landing there. He definitely has got that kind of, old-time wheeler-dealer trader thing going on. He's very uh, astute about this. And I guess it's the other aspect of this. We see it as being a, a pleasure trip going around the world. That still hadn't completely sort of settled home for Slocum. Yes, it's a pleasure trip, but also he knows how to make some money as he's going along. Now, it's in Melbourne that he decides to change somewhat the route that he was going to take. And I think uh, we've seen that quite a few times as he's going along. He's picking whatever's the best route based on the experience and knowledges that he gets as he goes along. And he's clearly concluded that beating up wind in the spray is not uh, all it's cracked up to be and very sensible of him to do that as well. So he comes to a point where it's going to be easier for him to go to the north of Australia and through the Torres Strait rather than going round the south and going round Cape Lewin. If you want to circumnavigate the world that south of the three stormy capes, then you must be south of Cape Horn, which he's already done, and then uh, south of Cape Lewin, which is the southernmost tip of Western Australia, and then south of uh, the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. So he's he's setting off on a slightly different route. It's a longer route. Obviously, the further you go south, the smaller the circumnavigation is going to be because you get closer to the pole. You still cross all your lines of longitude, but you do it at a further degree to the south, and that means it's a shorter route. He's now going to go a longer direction, but very quickly, even by the end of the chapters here, he's up into the trade winds. At that point, that means wind behind the beam, the boat's blowing along, and everything gets a lot easier. So an intelligent decision for him to make there. 
but while he's waiting to for the wind to kind of uh, freshen and, and kind of uh, make its uh, its way round to a favourable angle angle for himself, he takes time and, and fixes up the uh, the spray as good as he can. He's got that Fusion Maysal off and got some new sails on. Never a question here of like, and where did those sails come from? Uh, it just seems to be that benefactors and uh, people help him, help him along the way. Indeed, he finds himself a uh, a five pound note at the beginning of chapter 14 here and five pounds in those days would have been a you know a huge amount of money with this lovely note a lady sends mr slocum the enclosed five pound note as a token of her appreciation of his bravery in crossing the wide seas on so small a boat and all alone without human sympathy to help when danger threatened all success to you how lovely is that and he says you know still doesn't know who it was that uh, that gave it to him but obviously you heard the story wanted to help out and, and gave him a large amount of money i wonder if five pounds would have bought him the sales, maybe. It's the kind of amount that it would have been then. Uh, certainly later on when he's talking about this uh, vessel, the uh, the Akbar, and it's kind of somewhat crazy crew, um, he says that the guy has uh, received a couple of hundred pounds as a, a kind of weighty inheritance, and that's enough for him to buy a boat and become a fool with his money. So, you know, a, a couple of hundred pounds is a big inheritance. Five pounds is a decent amount of cash. No, no doubt that's probably where he got his new sales from. He's giving these talks as he as he goes along. I think he's done some before. He's more certainly to go on his voyage. And it's a way that he made a lot of income when he got back to the US doing these talks at country halls and, and churches and wherever he could get a, an audience. Um, but he gets a little bit of assistance here from Dr. McCall, who's uh, telling him, you know, not to be so nervous and to relax into it and, um, you know, giving him some hints on how to do it. He says it's he's the kind of person slocum that he just kind of gets involved in something without um necessarily thinking about what might be the pitfalls we can see that obviously with his entire voyage around the world but it's also something that's applied here to public speaking which people have feared the um uh, public speaking for as long as public speaking's been a thing it's that sign of or that worry of, of not being sort of accepted by those who are around you, not being accepted by your audience, and that being a wider kind of comment on who you are as a person. You are found to be a bad person uh, because this audience is looking at you and judging you, and you think that they're thinking bad things about you. Um, he's given some advice here not to not to worry so much about it, and that he'll get over it. Good 1880s um, type advice there. Yeah, you'll get over it. Um, <laughs> he says, though, that uh, I think it's only fair to say that I'm not yet entirely cool. And obviously, that's from the point of uh, a couple of years later. It is um, spectacularly scary going into this, but, uh, you know, to do public speaking. Uh, but Slocum, of course, had already been the captain of a ship. He'd have to interact with all sorts of harbour authority people and the, the um, address his crew and, and be very much the centre of people's focus. To then go and stand in a, a room of 20, 30 or 100 people and tell them a story about something you really know about it probably really wasn't worrying him that much but he does um he does describe himself as having a uh, a particular manner of uh, speaking here he, he calls it a uh, an oratorical bark <laughs> oratorical bark yeah i guess that's the point he's just uh, a gruff old sea captain who's talking to a group of people as though he's talking to a crew so um no doubt a few bits of advice uh, able to be given there to uh, improve his method. He sets off there north and he's heading now up, you know, north of Port Jackson and, and off up the coast. I know this area of the world pretty well. I was lucky enough to be in Australia in around 1999 and did a lot of um, 
touring. I drove from Perth to Adelaide to Melbourne to Sydney and then all the way up to uh, Brisbane, Cairns and Port Douglas. That was with a little Subaru um, sport wagon, I think it was called, like a 1980s uh, station wagon Subaru. Had a little trailer on the back with a little... um, yellow catamaran on it and uh, stopped and sailed in all places along there. I then went back years later and cycled from Sydney to Brisbane, had about uh, six weeks in Australia doing that. I've then gone back and traveled all up and down the um, the west coast of Western Australia and all the way down as far as Esperance and Albany and all the way up to Geraldton and on, on up then to um, Monkey Myatt. Australia is an incredible country. If you ever get the opportunity to go there, it is a land of just the most diverse uh, environment. Americans like that as well. You know, you've got such a large landmass, but something in Australia is very raw, very kind of uh, un- unformed. Obviously, everything's trying to bite you, sting you, get at you, but um, just such a beautiful country. And then uh, fantastic people as well. There's a wonderful kind of um, style to things down there. And I, I love this story that when he's in uh, Port Jackson, he's he's got himself a bit of a headache and he's hanging out in a uh, a hotel. He sees a, a ship kind of going past. He just sees that the stern of a large, unmanageable steamship passing the range of his window when a bellboy bursts in and tells him that the spray had gone bung. I've never heard that phrase before, but he learns uh, pretty quickly that bung means that it's been hit by a large steamship. So it seems that she was only hit at anchor, so she gave way to the forces and then was immediately secured alongside the steamship. And as the steamship, he says that... Um, the captain clubbed his ship. That's to club haul a ship is where you turn and go into the wind and then back down on your square sails and then uh, are able to put reverse rudder on so the ship brings the wind onto the other side of its bow and then reset the sails and head off. Now it's a steamship and it's operating in port so it wouldn't actually be club hauling in port. It wouldn't be necessary on a steamship but he's saying he backs down, turns himself around and then heads off in the other direction. Just that maneuver still maintains that... Um, that uh, that reference of being uh, clubbing the the ship around, but yeah, it's all sorted out. And then just as quickly as uh, the problem started, it's all uh, dealt with. Uh, the anchor gets paid for, that gets lost, as does the chain. It's that nice, easy kind of way that things roll along in a place where people aren't overly worried about uh, class and caste and uh, where you are in society. Everyone's just getting on and making things happen. And that egalitarian style of living is definitely a, a great aspect of, uh, of Australia, which has come through right from the fore. Obviously, that origins they had meant that um, everybody was at the same level when they started out and they, they've, they've continued that to their great advantage. Now, he heads uh, north uh, up on his way towards the Great Barrier Reef. And he says that he has a full uh, stack of uh, charts for this. He's very happy that he's uh, got these charts, but it is just worth thinking again without getting into it too much, like just where exactly his navigation was at. You know, he's going directly north along the Queensland coast. You basically just have to um, make sure that your, your your latitude identifies for you roughly where you're at, then you should be able to look around at the islands. A lot of these old charts at this time would have had horizontal aspects. They would have had the view as it seems from the sea of the islands and, and the mainland, and it, it would give you a lot of information about the islands that you were seeing around you. This was a style of charting which was based on the fact that you could be easily 30 or 40 miles out when you come from open ocean 
to coastal navigation. And as you swap into coastal navigation, there's going to be a bit at the beginning where you have to work out like, okay, where actually am I? You know, I could be here, I could be there. You're within this uh, large cocked hat or large uh, circle of probabilities where you may be. And then as you approach the coast, use those side elevations to see, okay, that's that hill, that's that church, that's that whatever else it was, big trees up on hill, whatever it was, that they could then go, okay, I'm here. I'm not there, I'm here. And then you could start doing your coastal nav from that point. But going out through the barrier reef, it's all very low lying. It's all sand caves and um, tiny little islands, Hinchinbrook Islands bigger. I've spent a lot of time in there. Actually, um, if you listen to any of the earlier podcasts, I actually had an experience where I was uh, shipwrecked in the, um, the barrier reef. If shipwrecked is swimming for five or six hours and then having to spend a night on an island and then try and get yourself off the next day when there's nobody around. I was shipwrecked, but I will say it was a little catamaran and I spent a lot of time in the water trying to tow it or at least modify its drift so that we came to an island. But uh, I know the area around there and it's black as pitch at night. And uh, if you've got no radar and you've got no accurate modern charts, you're using the stars, the sun, um, the, the throwing the lead over the side, getting depth, like everything which I think of as being there to help me now, the depth sounder and taking angles on things and radar ranges and he hadn't got any of that. So I think probably a lot of finding his way uh, through the islands during the daytime. And then if he's smart, I would imagine he probably puts the anchor down at night and, and stops. Or if he knows there's a particular clear section, then he can go a bit further. But a very, uh, very interesting place. And again, in there, you have to be very careful up that Queensland coast. You get some big uh, waves that run you into these ports. There's, I forget which one it is now, but there's a very famous bar going into one of the ports. It might be Townsville. I'm not sure if that's right, but there's a, a shallow spot. There's a Sulcombe bar in the UK, like a, a shallow sandbar before you get into the uh, town. Uh, if it's low tide, you can't get in. And when it's high tide, you can get over the bar, but there's a big breaking wave that goes over it. And uh, you may have ports of, uh, of refuge along the way, but um, whether you can get in or not is another thing. You've got to be able to deal with uh, working your boat into a small harbor with just sails. Remember, he's got no engine, no nothing. And uh, people will come out and help him as they, as they often do, but they need to know he's there. So he's got a signal to them. And it's just a way more complex than anything we have to deal with now. Um, but he seems completely happy. He's got his charts and he's got his, I guess, his clock and his uh, sextant and he's able to uh, pick his way through there and, and not really see it too much as being a challenge. Certainly after his experience of finding uh, the island of Nukahiva so accurately after uh, 44 days at sea coming from Juan Fernandez, I'm sure he's still feeling pretty proud of that. And we have no further kind of... Um, chit-chat, certainly in these sections of him having navigational errors. We had that bit at the beginning where he got himself on the on the shore when he was going down the coast of, was that Brazil or how, as he got a bit further south at that point, but he did go aground there and he was in the dory and trying to get his boat off and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is by now, he's, he's obviously dialed in exactly how his nav works. He's working pretty nicely with his uh, drift and how much leeway he's got and uh, able to find his way through the barrier reef without uh, any issues. I think there's something to say here also about this uh, little crew that he comes across on this sloop. You can tell from the way that he writes it that uh, he's um, he's pretty suspicious of these guys with their funny hats on pretending to be sailors on their little yacht and uh, they don't want to take a tow from him to the nearest port of refuge which had been a, a super easy option for him but they want to go to somewhere else that he's not willing to go to and it you can see that it's... Uh, 
uh, a crazy situation for him that they are just so uh, unable to handle what's going on around them. That is the thing, I think, which identifies this period of time. Previously, people on the water had been, for the most part, for the very large percentage, people who are working on the ocean, of which, of course, Slocum is one. But now we've got a new kind of breed of people who are out on the water, um, kind of pretending to be sailors. Cruising, they call it. Isn't that what um, Sterling Hayden uh, called it in that famous quote of his? But uh, that certainly uh, Slocum has not got much to say about them. Um, and he, they shout to him, is it a going to blow? And don't you think we better go back to refit? <laughs> it's literally how it's written with a couple of R's. Refit. He thought, uh, if ever you go back, don't refit. Obviously, if you go back, don't refit and come back out again. But he says to them, give me the end of a rope and I'll tow you into yon port farther along. And and on your lives, I urge, do not go back around Cape Hawk. But they won't just take it from them. They won't um, take the advice. And so in the end, he can do no more but basically say, you know, <laughs> good luck, chaps. And uh, finds out later on, of course, that May 31st, that the yacht has been lost there's a couple little notes as he's going through that bit he does note here that uh, akbar was not the registered name um and he just says it need not be told uh, what the name of the boat was so he's kind of saving people there and the other thing is that the guy on board the boat um he describes him as a uh, murrumbidgee whaler before he took command of the akbar the little note at the bottom says that the murrumbidgee is a small river winding along the mountains of australia and would be the last place in which to look for whales <laughs> so even that phrase that he's a murrumbidgee uh, whaler is is for slocum taking the piss basically these people have no clue what they're doing so you'll have to think up some variation of that that you can use in your area where there's a completely uh unlikely place to find a whale well that's uh it- those people who are doing such a poor job of their seamanship and uh, of their sailing, we could describe them as uh, whalers from that region. I'm just trying to think, there's a little river here now, which is called the Mushamush, which comes out into Mahone Bay, and it's probably three feet deeper is deepest. So Mushamush whalers is something I should be adding into my uh, vocabulary from now on. As we go in towards the end of this uh, chapter, there's a couple of nice little bits he's put here. Um, he's talking, uh, as always, of course, he's he's always got a kind of mind to the romantic and, and poetry and, and what the sea is to those who don't particularly go upon it. And he says, uh, poets have sung of beacon light and of pharos, but did ever poet behold a great light flash up before his path on a dark night in the midst of a coral sea? If so, he knew the meaning of his song. There's so much chit chat and kind of... Um, elegant and uh, and uh, beautiful language of uh, these wonderful kind of sentimental thoughts of you know that yonder yonder lonely lighthouse upon the wide wide sea that kind of thing this is him saying i don't know if you've ever actually experienced that but there's a incredible poetry and an incredible feeling that comes upon you when you finally do see that light that saves you that bright light that burns out across this coral sea and shows you the safe way through. The poets are correct to write that stuff, but so few of them actually probably experience it. They don't even know the meaning of their own songs. Um, okay, so I guess we get into the last page here. And um, the the Barrier Reef is, uh, for him, an area which he seems to feel is absolutely beautiful. He seems to make his way through a lot of the islands um, at night 
which again, my God, how? But um, <laughs> the, uh, the he gets up through the wits and they pass and actually laments then the fact that he doesn't get to see the scenery that he's uh, going through and, and having sailed through that region it really is absolutely beautiful uh, not least just the color of the water and the white sand down below it i've, I've dived on the coral reef on the on the great uh, barrier reef sorry and uh, it is completely incredible like massive what are those things like oysters or clams i don't know some giant bivalve um thing mollusk whatever that is down on the seabed that's like you know a meter from side to side and probably oh, what's that like three feet from end to end and like a foot and a half two feet deep like would weigh probably you know a hundred pounds or more and it's uh, it's just on the bottom kind of doing its thing and um them giant um what were those uh they were groupers giant groupers come swimming in if i remember correctly i was there there was like this particular grouper i think it was called wally and uh, obviously the point where's Wally, but this grouper would turn up all the time to watch divers like going down from this particular boat that anchors in a particular area or all the boats anchor there and all the divers go on the bottom to watch what's going on. And the groupers coming in to watch the divers and uh, those groupers, man, they are huge. They are many hundreds of pounds. Like you turn around and there's one of those up above you. It's uh, it's quite, quite impressive. But um Obviously, uh, we are worried a little bit these days by the fact that that environment is being damaged. It's only a couple of pages back, of course, that uh, Slocum uh, recognizes that the ferneries are on the decline and that uh, the uh, the great... Now, I was interested when I was reading this, it says... Um, uh, I was haunted by the beauty of the landscape all about of the natural ferneries then disappearing and of the... Now, it's D-O-M-E-D. Is that domed or doomed? I think it's domed. But in the reading, I decided to go with doomed because uh, I was trying to like reiterate and kind of uh, uh, concrete the point that um, he's talking about the disappearing ferneries. And although he's talking about domed trees, they are unfortunately doomed trees. Um, but he says that he met a gentleman there intent on preserving in art the beauties of his country. Uh, and he gets a load of pictures and, and paintings off him. But that unfortunately is something which has continued and continued until now the Barriott's reef itself is dying and the largest organism on earth is being destroyed by the acidification of the sea. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, a great worry obviously to the people of Australia. To, it should be a great worry to the world because things are changing and we need to be understood uh, it needs to be understood very clearly what's changing and how and, and how serious it's going to be for us. If the seas start to warm up, there are lots of minerals which are embedded in the sea floor, which have uh, interesting properties where they sublimate. They go straight from solid to gas. And when they do, they release huge amounts of carbon dioxide. So you get to a critical water temperature where suddenly these elements down below the seabed sublimate and then you get a massive release of uh, greenhouse gases so it's interesting that only 18 uh, 1890s he's starting to realize things are changing um, that's not really slowed down he wouldn't even recognize the way that the land looks now now we're more worried about the the very thing he's just sailed through the coral sea itself being destroyed but uh, I do I do like with uh, Slocum that he seems to have an excellent grasp of um, bringing just the right amount of uh, details to hand you know here's a detail about a person here's a detail about a small thing on the ship here's a detail about the way the weather's going here's something I saw it's like it keeps updated and, and, and very nice there's clearly not much going on he's you know just arrived in Australia he's in port for a few days fixed a few things up meets a few folks and drives up the coast there's another kind of writer who could have really left that uh that that period of the book those chapters wanting but um slocum is excellent or slocum plus his 
editor or whatever it is is the process uh, that gets this book to to press um, they do a great job of balancing it up so it all runs along very nicely and you feel all the time that uh, you're, you're staying in touch with the story not much is happening right now we're obviously we're going to set off from Australia soon and continue voyaging around the world but he's able to bring to bear a nice selection of details which um, keep the the atmosphere moving and keep the energy moving and, and keep us uh, engrossed in what's going on but um, yeah now he's at the top of the uh, Coral Sea um, he's coming up to the side of the Cape York Peninsula that pointy bit of Australia that points up on the top right hand corner and he's heading up towards um, Papua New Guinea and uh, and the Torres Strait. Uh, <laughs> I was interested to see that the, the guy on the sailing yacht was going to Papua New Guinea with the idea of purchasing it. And like, you might want to chat to the people that live there. They're not well known for receiving <laughs> people, uh, you know, <clears throat> and listening to their foolishness. I think a lot of people that went up to Papua New Guinea early on with ideas of taking over the country um, lost their head in a physical and uh, metaphorical manner. So, yeah, good. Uh, good to get towards the end of this bit now. With uh, he's he's at the Antipodean point. I know that where I am in Nova Scotia here is uh, the Antipodean point of where I am now. The exact opposite place on the planet is about five hundred miles south of Perth in Western Australia. So Slocum right now is very much nearing a kind of point in his journey where he is at the far end of the world. But the good thing is that he's kind of moving. He's done the he's done the difficult bit. He's done Cape Horn. He's done crossing the Pacific and not crashing into something in the middle of the night. He's back on the coast of Australia, which is charted at that point. He knows where he's at and he's in amongst friends. So as we set off onto the next bit, um, him leaving and heading out towards uh, Thursday Island and into the Indian Ocean and Christmas Island, we'll get back to the voyaging that we know. But uh, yeah, so far so good. Halfway around the world and Slocum's doing great. Good. I wonder where you are and what you're doing right now. If these kind of dreams of circling the world are on your mind, as Slocum has done, if you want to do it, it is possible. It's not uh, an impossible dream. It is possible to make something like this happen. So if there's any inspiration in here for you to set off on your own circumnavigation, drop me a line. Tell me all about it. We read the questions and the, uh, the wonderful emails we receive from listeners each week on the questions and tangents section of the Mariner podcast. And you can um, put questions to me or shake them out with the rest of the community and uh, make your own circumnavigation a reality. How awesome would that be? Go in Slocum's footsteps. But until then, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to reading more of Slocum to you in the next one. Cheers. Thank you.